And we are live. Welcome to Fantastic Fiction at KGB. Tonight's guests are William Gibson and Kat Rambo. Uh, I'm Matt, Matthew Kressel. I co-host a series with Ellen Datlow. And uh, we're a little bit early, so we're going to just hang out for a little while. And we're going to start the reading probably around 10 after 7 p.m. Eastern time with Kat Rambo. So uh, hang out, pull up a chair, grab a drink. Thanks Good for joining us. KGB. Yes, yes. Well, what drinks? I have a uh, Bailey's. Uh, what do other people have? I have a ginger, um, ginger soda. <laughs> that ginger I, have, I have ginger syrup and put it in with club soda. Very nice. I have, I have home brewed stump town hair bender in a Starbucks Christmas. <laughs> All right. Hey. Good stuff. I like that. Yeah, I have a. Um, KCBC uh, Imperial Stout. It's called What We Don't See. It's, uh, <laughs> it's very smoky. It's actually really cool art. If you could see, really cool, I'm, just gonna, yeah. I'm just gonna solo it really quick. Yeah. You could see the, uh, the like the skull in water. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, it's very nice. It's good. <laughs> All right. What's that stand I'm for? Sorry. KCBC. Oh, um, Kings County Brewing Collective. Oh, Brewers yeah. okay. Yes, Kings County is another name for Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. it's, it's very good. It's very funny to see you holding up a Starbucks mug, Phil, because one of the moments from your books that sticks with me more than any other is the protagonist who is allergic to brands. Yes. <laughs> I just thought it was one of the smartest things I had ever seen, particularly the Michelin man being yeah, stick out in my mind that one. Yeah. Well, our daughter it has that has always had that reaction to the Michelin man. Oh yeah. And that was partly where the idea for that character's <laughs> brand allergy came from. So mm -hmm. I had to get the actual Michelin man in. But our Michelin man, that was in the course of researching that, I saw what the Michelin Man looked like originally. Holy shit, scary. <laughs> but such a scary trademark. Yeah. I found out recently that the uh, character on the Pringles can is modeled on Gene Wolfe. Uh, since oh, oh, right, right. A machine. Yeah, the character? I don't remember ever seeing a character oh. on it. Is there there is really a, next time, and you'll say that is Gene. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know? He invented <laughs> the Pringle, right? The machine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it came up as a uh, trivia question in a trivia night that I was at. Recently. Oh my God, that's so. So wasn't he an engineer for Pringle? Yeah, he they never got any royalties or anything. He was working for the company. Yeah, I mean that's such a shame. But next time you eat Pringles, if you if you do, uh, you know you may not it want to. It's actually gotten a little better. They used to taste like fake food. Now I think they actually taste like potatoes a little bit now. Well, now now they come in like twenty seven different flavors. Oh, well, yes, they do. Potato chip has to be plain potato and oh. salt, and that's it. Don't put any other crap on it, or it's not a potato chip. It's my life in my world. <laughs> All of, all of the snacks come now in this wide range of flavors that you would not expect. Right. Mm. Like Oreos. 
Oreos. I, yeah. I like I got Oreos for the first time in years. I mean, I haven't had Oreos in like at least a decade. And I something inspired me, I think because they were being boycotted or some bullshit. So I decided, gee, I'm, oh, here's some Oreos on sale. I haven't had Oreos. And I could only get the double ones, the double cream. And I think, oh, my God, these are really good. You know, it's like I remember I used to always love the cream and the Oreos. Yeah, these are pure sugar between more sugar. They're awesome. Right, I loved it. Yeah, it was great. <laughs> uh, so, yes, I, but I finished my Oreos. No more Oreos for me. Mm. Bill, how old is Claire now? Oh, geez, I'm terrible with that. But what decade? I mean, approximately. <laughs> she's, she's, you know, getting into kind of, she's past her mid thirties. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I, I don't think I've seen her in 25 years or 20 yeah. years. Yeah, well, she's like, she's good. She's like grown and, you know, uh -huh. much the same in many ways, but. Okay, well, don't forget everyone can hear us. So be, be aware, <laughs> be aware. Yeah. <laughs> so don't say anything that you wouldn't want people to hear. Hi, Chris. Hi, Lily, Amy, all these other people, Lizanne. We have about 60 people watching live, and it's only oh. seven. Oh, oh, my goodness. Hello, Amy. Hello, Chris. We'll be starting Hello, in about Sam. 10 minutes or so. Just so Hello, Jordan. Know. Hello, everyone. Um, so awesome. So if you're joining us now and you can comment <laughs> on YouTube, let us know where you're joining us from. We're always interested oh, to yeah. see where people are coming from uh, and who wins the prize for being the, the furthest away yeah. from New York City. Where? Yeah. We had Australia before, right? I think. You mean uh, on this or in real life? You no, mean not in real uh, on this on the stream? Um, yeah, we've had people from around the world. Yeah. I mean, don't forget the time is really bad for some people. You're right. If it's for Australia, it would be about. Is it seven a.m. there or eight a.m.? Nine in the morning. That's not terrible. That's not terrible at all. Hold on, I'll be right back. How do I mute myself? Oh, there I am, okay. I have, because I do these online classes, I'm always impressed by the Australian students because the where where I do the classes, they're ending up uh, logging in at two or 3 a.m. And that is so much more dedicated <laughs> in the pursuit of their craft than I. <laughs> but they are awesome, it's always awesome. Yeah, it's, 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 been interesting. I I did a um, I went to World Fantasy. Where uh, were you there, Cat? Um, Which the one? World Fantasy convention. The one, the recent one, the one that. Oh, yeah. um, I heard. I heard there was a lot of good things about it. Yeah, it was very good, and uh, it, being that it was all on Zoom, it actually they they did it really well. I was. I've been watching the different conferences over the course of the year. I think the first was uh, the Nebulas, and I've been to, I think, huh, like two dozen others over the course of 2020. And it's really interesting to see who kind of leans into the technology and makes the most of it and who uh, kind of gets so throttled by trying to keep the old model uh, that they missed out on opportunities. Oh, so yes. we got a, we got a lot of people responding from from different locations. Um, I see a lot of people from Queens. That's my hometown. Uh, Yukia, California. Um, let's see here. Denmark. Hello, Denmark. Perseus Ajax from Denmark. Hello, Denmark. Anarchist jurisdiction East. Yes. Uh, 
let's see, Seattle, uh, Bainbridge yeah, Island, Washington. Yeah, let's see. Yeah, yeah, my DM. Vermont. Can I give him shit about killing my character recently? <laughs> right. Um, wait, did I see? <laughs> Gilly, don't text me. It costs me money every time you text. I have go is go phone. Wait, what? <laughs> Gilly, Gilly. Are people texting me right now? Yeah, it's like, don't do that just to say hello. Oh, Puerto <laughs> Rico. Maya uh -huh. Puerto Rico. Hi, Eileen and John. Hello, everyone. So Chengdu. Just Wait, so Chengdu. Wow, cool. Yeah, if you're just tuning in, this is Fantastic Fiction at KGB. Sarasota. Uh, tonight's guests are William Gibson and Kat Rambo. I'm Matthew Kressel. I co-host this series with Ellen Datlow. Uh, we're going to get started about 10 after 7 p.m., so stick around. We're just waiting for everyone to come in the bar, so to speak. Um, have a drink. Enjoy have a drink. Have a drink if you, if you uh, admire the glitter coat. I have. Yes, beautiful glitter coat. Cat, you have a collection of horses. I do. Those actually each represent writing goals that got achieved. That's how I bribe myself to wow. finish things. Yeah. I like it. Well, I, I think I if you're going to bribe yourself, it should be with things that you're not going to cheat on. And if it was made of code, I'm sorry. That uh, always just looks like a tick or something, like a giant tick. No, it's a toad. It's a toad. <laughs> At least the top half of one. That's the bottom cool. one is gone. Maybe it's another piece of, I don't know, trash. Someone gave this to me. But I do going with you to the new apartment, or is it part of the culling? No, we're going. It'll be going. Things like that are going. I am trying to get rid of mostly books, though. So, so Bill and Kat, you're both on the West Coast. It's uh, what is it? 4 p.m. There. Yeah. Nice and sunny. No. 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 <laughs> Never sunny on the West Coast. It's yeah. quite rainy here. We've yeah. It's really cold here, but it was sunny. Yeah. We had we had something yesterday, not exactly where I live, but a couple of hundred miles away, called thunder snow. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but I'd never even that. heard of before that people said was absolutely terrifying. Mm-hmm. Well, we had a storm supposedly and we had a tornado a few days ago. Oh really? Yeah. We didn't know. I got a tornado warning on my phone. Yeah, yeah. Where did but, it touch down? I don't know. <laughs> it was from Manhattan, Bronx, and Queens. I have no idea. It was if a it squall. It might, I, I didn't even know. I'm like, this pandemic has me so locked in. I didn't even look out the window all day. And then my father calls. He's like, yeah, that storm. I go, what storm? And then yeah, I look it was outside. Sunday night. I had just had dinner. And luckily, I got home like, 40 minutes before there was like major thunderstorms. I, like, can, you know, like, I can totally see it in Washington Square. Uh-huh. Like just a, a little tornado touching down in Washington oh, Square. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And sometimes you can get a little tornado. I mean, yeah. there have been tornado warnings before, usually in Brooklyn. And I don't know if it actually did touch ground or did any damage. I didn't hear about much damage after the fact. So I think maybe nothing happened. I don't know. I'm going to say, oh, um, Jake, I was in Chengdu. Love Chengdu. Yeah. So 
Uh, Kat, uh, someone named Marcel Green says the photo of you on your Wikipedia page is you reading at the KGB bar in 2000. And, and it's one of the dresses that I bought at Clarion West, which Chris Dykeman, who was there with me at Clarion West, will recognize. I'm seeing so many people that I recognize. And just like, hi to all of you. That's so awesome. Uh, another person from Canada, Hamilton, Ontario. Excellent. Hey. He's reading your work, Bill. I don't know if you can't, you're not seeing this. No, I can't. I can't okay. see um, the people. It's a shame. What's yeah, the comment, uh, Ellen? I can put it up on the screen. Yeah, howdy from Ontario, Canada, especially the Great Dismal. Yeah, there it is. Here you go. Thanks for this. You're David, welcome. David, you're welcome. David, did you did it hit any place that tornado? David. Yeah, he's going to take a second for him to respond. Know, right? There's a little delay on the on the live stream. Yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, is a very science fictional city the one that Jake's talking about, Ellen will agree. Don't you think it's one of the most kind of science fictional places? No. no? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we didn't hang out there long enough. I mean, we were just there for a few days. Uh, I was there with John Barry and Eileen Gunn. Ah! Uh, um, yeah. And Michael Swanwick and Marianne Porter and so nice. my friend Claire Henry. And I think it was just, I think there was a, six of us? I think it was uh -huh. us. That was it, I think, unless I'm missing... I think it was six of us traveled together to China. Yeah. So no, I mean it was fine, um, but I don't remember it being science fictional. <laughs> it was just. How, how do you feel with science fictional? Well, we got we went. I guess it would have been four or five years ago, and they were very nice. Uh, they took us around to a lot of different uh, places, including. Uh, a place where they were doing uh, VR simulation. And then there's a really kind of very cool bookstore uh, in the heart of Chengdu that's in this sort of fancy mall that really sort of makes you feel like you're on the inside of a spaceship. And they have a lot of just sort of very grand architecture and a lot mm -hmm. of nifty stuff like that. It was really neat. I remember Chengdu. And the food, of course, is amazing. Oh, the food all over was great. It's so inexpensive. I missed. I really missed. I got by accident. Well, I didn't get it. We, we had. A, we ordered like from two columns, and one of the columns had chicken feet. Uh -huh. I said, "Oh, I'll try them." I, oh, I we nah, 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 no. We tried them twice, and the second time, like the first time, they were kind of boiled, and I was kind of like, "Eh." And the second time, they took us out to a, a street place. Yeah. We were like freshly deep fried, and of course, anything deep fried is going to be better. But Probably. Did you actually eat the feet when they're deep fried? Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. yeah. When they were boiled, it was disgusting. Like, what are you supposed to do with them? Suck <laughs> It's like, uh, I don't think so. Yeah. Deep fried, I'll taste anything. Uh, on that note, on that note, it's about 7 Eleven. We should probably start. Oh, sorry. Yes. Okay. Yeah. No, I like no, crunchy, okay. crunchy things I'll try. <laughs> um, all right. So, um, Welcome, uh, everyone who's joining us. We have, uh, according to my little uh, chart here, we have 101 live viewers at the moment. So welcome. Wow. Um, tonight's guests are William Gibson and Kat Rambo. Uh, I'm Matthew Kressel, and this is, and I co-host a series with Ellen Datlow. This is Fantastic Fiction at KGB. Uh, so normally we would host this series at the KGB bar in Manhattan, but because of the pandemic, we've been doing it online. And believe it or not, this is our ninth month 
which is kind of crazy. It's really yeah. But actually, uh, the, the, the good thing about this is we were able to um, both get uh, guests that are not from New York or not in the Northeast or who couldn't come to New York and also have viewers from all over the world. We always yeah. had the podcast or we had the podcast uh, starting in 2015 that anyone can listen to. But now we have the live stream. So uh, if you joined us a little earlier, you saw that like people are joining us from all over the world, which is awesome. Uh, we're really excited um, to have you guys here. So um, uh, we're going to have two readings tonight from Kat Rambo and William Gibson. And um, after both readings, um, at the end, we're going to do a Q&A with them. So uh, start thinking of good questions if you have. Um, so just briefly, uh, the Fantastic Fiction at KGB is a monthly spec speculative fiction reading series held on the third Wednesday of every month at the famous KGB bar in Manhattan. And um, the series started in, late, in the late 90s uh, by Terry Bisson and Alice Turner. They were attempting to bring together mainstream writers with writers of speculative fiction in order to show in Alice Turner's words that at a certain level, they were plowing exactly the same field. Uh, in the spring of 2000, editor Ellen Datlow took over for Alice Turner. And in August 2002, Gavin J. Grant, publisher of Small Beer Press, stepped in for Terry Bisson when he moved to California. And I stepped in for Gavin in April of 2008. Uh, streaming across the bottom of your screen there, you will see um, our website, um, the link. So uh, it does cost us a little bit to run the series. Not a lot, a little bit, but uh, you know, if some of you remember, we had a Kickstarter like five years ago. We're starting to run out of money. So um, if you can, if you, if you feel up to it, if you wanna pick us a few bucks, that would be great. If not, totally cool. We're, we're happy to have you viewing. Uh, we're happy to have the viewers either way, but if you can. Uh, the other thing we should also mention is that the KGB bar itself. So the KGB bar is the Soviet era themed bar in the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Um, used to serve as like a speakeasy style meeting place for uh, socialists during the McCarthy period. Uh, right now it's, or I should say before the, the pandemic, um, it was um, basically every night of the week there is some kind of literary or poetry event going on. It is like New York Times called it one of the best literary establishments in New York City. And um, they were closed for <coughs> and they only opened last month to like limited seating. Um, we didn't feel comfortable going back there, but we, we still support the bar. And we would ask that if you guys could support the bar, uh, so right here is a link. Let me try to, I have too many banners going on here. So if you can, if you want to, um, if you could throw them five bucks or 10 bucks, the price of a, of, a, of a drink that you might get at the bar, that would help keep the bar open because it is a fantastic establishment. If you ever come to New York City after this pandemic and you visit New York City, one place you should go. And it is a dive bar, but it's a dive bar in the best possible sense. It's like, it's just, it it's, just you feel that you walk in there and you just feel that there's history there. There's, it reminds me a little bit of kind of the vibe, maybe not the same as CBGB, but it's got that level of history. Um, it's not as dirty as CBGB was. It's not nearly as dirty. No, it's very, and we miss our bartenders, Dan and Seiji. Um, yeah. 
So yeah, so um, yeah, so we're gonna get on to our first reader. And just a reminder, like I said, there's going to, there are going to be uh, Q and A uh, after the reading. So stick around, please. Uh, think of some good questions to ask. Um, and we have a five minute intermission, approximately. Yeah. After after Cat reads, we're gonna break for five minutes, and then we'll come back with William Gibson. So our first reader tonight is Cat Rambo. Cat Rambo is the author of over 200 stories and four novels, including upcoming space opera, You Sexy Thing from Tor McMillan in 2021. Her novelette, Carpe Glitter, won a Nebula Award earlier this year. She lives, writes, and teaches in Seattle. Here's Cat Rambo. Hello. It's really exciting to see all of you in chat and so many names that I recognize. I'm going to start, I'm going to read a passage whoops, from Carpe Glitter, and then I'm going to read a recent flash piece that I like. So without further ado, uh, Carpe Glitter. Carpe Glitter, my grandmother Gloria always said, seize the glitter. And that was what I remembered best about her, the glitter. A dazzle of rhinestone, a waft of petite joy, lipstick like a red banner across her mouth. Underneath all that, a wiry little old lady with silver hair and vampire pale skin. Not that she was a vampire, of course, but Gloria Aim hung with everyone who was anyone during her days in the Vegas crowd. Celebrities, presidents, journalists, they all came to her show at the Sparkle Dome, watched her strut her stuff in a black top hat and fishnet stockings, conjuring flames and doves, never card tricks, which she hated making ghosts speak to loved ones in the audience. And when she stepped off, stepped off the stage, she left in a scintillating dazzle, like a fairy queen stepping off her throne. All that shine, and at home, she was a grubby hoarder. I mopped sweat off my forehead with the hem of my t-shirt and attacked another pile of magazines. Dust wafted up to fill my nostrils and make me sneeze, drifted down the coat, the hairs on my forearms with grit. Something had rotted in the corner. I was doing that side once I'd cleared a path to it and breathing through my mouth in the meantime. This had once been intended as a guest room, but it had been taken over by a troop of china-headed dolls stacked atop piles of brittle newspapers and magazines. No cat pee. I'd been spared that in these back rooms, closed off for at least a couple of decades. Grandmother had bought the house when she was at the height of her first fortune. She just burst onto the stage magician scene, a woman from Brooklyn who'd trained herself in sleight of hand and studied under the most famous female stage magician of her time, Susan Day. The nearest heap of magazines, in fact, flaking away at my touch, showed grandmother and her mentor on the up uppermost cover, a poster from their brief tour together just after World War II. Glamorous older day, blonde hair worn in a sleek bun and eyes blue as turquoise. Grandmother bright and shiny, not just from the rhinestones glittering across her chest, but starry eyed, her grin so wide it stretched her mouth. The stack held dozens of copies of the same issue, no matter how far down I went. A swarm of silverfish scurried away as I lifted the last one. I'd get the room cleared before bringing out my arsenal of bug spray for an onslaught. Yellowed confetti bits fell away as I put the stack on the heap to be bagged up and trashed. 
By now, I'd learned that paper flaking that badly meant the appraiser's regretful head shake and the murmur too badly eroded missing. As with each of the seven rooms I'd managed so far, I sorted the contents into piles. Throw away was by far the largest. To be appraised had interesting things in it beside the scads of dolls grandmother had collected. Keep was actually two subpiles, one for mother and one for me. Object after object to be evaluated and sorted. Old magazines and flutters of candy wrappers. So much clothing, most of it absurdly formal, scratchy with ancient starch. Theater props piled on top of grab bags she picked up at church rummage sales, still unopened. Half-filled perfume bottles and compacts full of sweet dust. And then there were oddities, a picture stitched of human hair showing a castle on a cliff, an enormous crystal ball, a good foot and a half wide, a mechanical banjo <coughs> trio that played itself, complete with a library of antebellum songs to choose from, a basket stuffed with sandalwood fans. The rotting thing turned out to be a heap of furs that when stirred sent up a stench reminiscent of old sauerkraut. It sent me out into the hallway for a while to lean against the yellowing wallpaper and breathe in fresher air. The doll collection was worth a good bit, perhaps, I'd been told, but nothing on the scale of financial windfall I'd hoped for. Grandmother had been wealthy, even though she'd kept her spending discreet, aside from this strange mishmash of a house. Where had all that money gone? And why had she saved everything? I thought perhaps it was a return to her childhood days, which had been uncertain and full of moves. My great-grandfather had been a con man, always on the edge of getting run out of town, according to her stories. They'd had to leave in the middle of the night more than once, abandoning anything that couldn't go in a suitcase. This could have been a reaction to that. There was no point to psychoanalyzing my dead grandmother, though. Once the furs were bagged up and taken out, the room was much more bearable. I kept on searching, working through the last of the piles before examining the desiccated rug underneath, so dry I was worried it might crumble away if I tried to vacuum it. My cell vibrated against my hip. I slid it out of my shorts pocket and glanced at the screen. My mother. I took a breath before thumbing the phone on. Yes, I said. I wish you hadn't chosen this, Mother said, launching right back into the same argument we'd been having all week. Ever since I'd said, actually, I'll take the second option at the reading of the will. It's ridiculous. You could probably tell them that you've changed your mind, that you want the money instead. You never know. I might turn up something wonderful, I said, trying a new tack. Maybe I could convince her that there might be treasure buried in the piles and heaps lining this massive amalgamation of three houses. Maybe then she'd support me in this. She hissed in patience. At least that's what that strangled sound had always meant for both her and grandmother. Mother liked to pretend she was grandmother's antithesis, but the truth was they were more alike than either would have admitted. I'd even found a mannerism or two I didn't think of of mine as their, but theirs, creeping into my own speech. Have you found anything? She demanded. Not yet, I said. But I've only begun to scratch the surface. 
You have no idea how much stuff she managed to cram into this place. It's a little mind-blowing. I towed at the pile I'd been sorting, and it slid sideways with a waft of cedar and old socks. It almost made me gag. Why are you being so stubborn about this, Persephone? I'm 30 years old. I get to make my own choices. Grandmother offered them to me. I hesitated before adding, it's not your call, feeling the words slide distance between us when my mother was already so far away. She hung up without a word. I stared at the connection terminated before wiping at my face again, tasting salt on my lips. I was sweating up a storm in this fierce heat. That's all this was. When I graduated from high school and grandmother had said she wouldn't pay for college, I pleaded with my mother to intercede. You caused this, I said. I'm not asking you to tell me what happened. It's all between you and her. I'm not taking sides, but if you went to her, mother shook her head quickly, nervously shaking away any chance. Her hands, long fingered and dexterous as my grandmother's, as my own, twisted in front of her as though signing negation. I put my arm down on the kitchen table and immediately regretted it. We were living in an apartment over a diner. It always smelled of old hamburgers and every surface acquired a sticky, oily film that felt like cling wrap sticking to the skin. Next door, one of the three Laotian women that lived there began yelling at another in one of their interminable arguments. No, no, my mother said, words tumbling, desperation driven. Just the mention of grandmother sent her into a panic. Let's not talk about that. But think of what else you can do. You wrote all those wonderful essays for the literary magazine. Surely they must have some scholarship fund for promising students. Or if you joined the National Guard, they'll pay and then you'd know what you were doing straight out of college. Mom, I shook my head, mirroring her gesture in slow motion. Do you think I didn't look into every other option? The time for applying for scholarships is long past. I'd have to postpone school for a year. Then postpone it for a year. You can live here, find a job, put money aside. No. I'd seen too many other people let a year turn into three, two, then three, then never. There's always something to eat away whatever funds you have. I had to grab the chance while I could. I'd watched the meager wage my mother had made as a secretary in the years since my grandmother stopped subsidizing us. It melted away every month. Always something, a roof to be fixed, my mother's ulcer operation, a thousand car problems. I'd stepped up and managed all that, getting part-time jobs, but never enough, never money to put away for college. And I hadn't thought about it, always assuming my grandmother would pay my way. I didn't expect to live lavishly. I was more than willing to keep working, but without her funds, I was sunk. I could have cried then, but what good would that have done? other than tying my mother up in knots. So I went to see my grandmother. And if you're curious about what the house looks like at that point, you'll have to pick up the book and I will read a flash story as well. Um, as you may or may not know, I really love flash fiction. It's one of my favorite, favorite forms. And this just appeared, I think last week in daily science fiction. It's called, I decline. I decline. With all due respect, sirs and madams and others, I 
am declining the technology awarded to me by the U.S. Department of Geriatric Care. I know it is a small and inconsequential thing to you. Look at how simply you have engineered it, this memory keeper. Only a metal ball the size of my fist, and that an older model now. I'm sure you get them at a good rate, given how many you give out. But it lets you do too much. I used it faithfully when it arrived. How could I not? All the children and great-grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren pooled their money to buy a fancy UI for it, make it something that would remind me to download every day. They said, and here is something that brings tears to a man's eyes hearing his descendants say it, we don't want you to die, Baba. When I was young, I would have said the same. Dying was unimaginable, lying down and never getting up. But nowadays, sometimes I think about it. I imagine lying in the woods under trees. It's cold, but I'm wrapped in a fluffy comforter and perfectly dry, lying there, listening to the rain that cannot touch me going to sleep. I do want to live, to see their children, their children's children. I know that may not happen. Already they're talking about licensing childbirth, but, and it's because there are so many, and if no one dies, well, you see the problem as well as I do. And I understand what this thing is meant to do. Every morning I have pressed the bubble on it to my forehead, let it store everything that's in my head. That way, if I die during the day, they can download the memories into a shell body. They say the rich get real bodies, grown for them, not metal and plastic shells. I believe it. The rich get things the poor do not, and that is the way of life. We do get some things they don't, but none of them are things anyone would want. Starvation, illness, ignorance, despair. That sounds more bitter than I mean it to be. I don't want you to think of me as a sour old man shaking his fist at strange new technology. That's not it at all. That is not what I object to. No, it would be a different beast if it were that simple. It's the review and revise function. How can you think placing this in a person's hands will not destroy them as it has me? Because this machine doesn't replicate me sometime in the future. It holds a mirror up, shows me as I am now. I'm speaking, you must realize, of the self-editing toolkit. Yes, this is an advanced feature, one I should not have access to without a trained technician to assist me, guide me, tell me what I should do. But my youngest great-grandchild, the one being raised underwater so I don't see so much of them, they can hack anything. So I called them, and they showed me how to access it and how to use it to see all the pieces that make me up. The pieces that made me strike a dog once or let my children go hungry. They never complained and at the time I thought, well, I'm the breadwinner. I need the food so I can keep on doing that. But then I think of Luca and how small she is and I know it is because of what I did, what I talked myself into doing. And my heart shrinks and shrivels like a piece of paper gone wet and then dried again. I can edit those parts out now, the ones I couldn't see before, make myself into someone incapable of doing that. But the truth is I did it, I lived it. And the one thing I won't let myself edit away, those memories. I know, I know, that's a different machine, even more expensive than this one. I hear it can even create memories you never had, doing things you always wanted to do. You don't do them, of course, but you remember it. Sometimes people take memories away, though, with a kit like this. 
That girl last week who erased herself, removing every memory she had, no one found out what it was she was escaping. They never will. Maybe, like me, she wanted to escape herself and what she was, what life had made of her, or the other way around. Aren't they the same when you get down to it? And so, anyhow, my great-grandchild pulled up the menu for me, the one with all the warnings about self-access, the one you thought no one could get to, maybe. Who knows why you've done any of this? I don't know. I'm getting carried away. That's something old age does when it's not regulated. Some days the smallest things can make me weep or fly into a rage. You, and who is you? The makers of this machine, those who live this sort of life this machine makes possible. You've edited yourselves, mind and body, and I can tell it from the way you move, the way your skin glows from within, as though you carried a light in your belly, that fire fueling every movement. When I opened up the editing screen, I didn't know what to do, what anything was, but I can figure things out, so I did. I tapped and clicked inside my head and I became acquainted with myself. No one should get to know themselves that well. The lens is too clear. There's no softening of the cruel things, the errors, the inadvertent unkindnesses, the selfish things disguised as something else. I'd always thought myself not the best person, but kind at least, when I could afford to be. I'd covered over all the examples saying otherwise, and now here they were, all pretense stripped away, and the horror of that will never leave me. Are humans good or evil? The answer is this, we want to be good, but it's a fight. Not against evil, but selfishness, that single-minded me that ignores everyone else. You can hate that urge, but it's also what holds your ego together, keeps you from being drowned in other people's needs. And yet it's all those selfish urges warring in your soul, back and forth, back and forth. It never stops. I'm tired of that battle. And seeing it in your device only makes it more agonizing. I've rambled long enough and almost filled this paper. I enclosed the machine in the original packaging and thank you, but no, I have erased all that it holds. There is just me and I have been shattered and autumn is coming. I will go to the woods and lie down. I will lie down and everything that is me will pass away. And I'm sorry, I know that's a bit of a downer. Uh, I hope you enjoy That's great. Wow, that was terrific. That was powerful. Wow. Thank excellent, you. Excellent story. Very illustrious. It is. Yeah. It is. That's on daily science fiction? Yeah, I think it was. That, I you said that last came week out last week? week? Okay. All right. well, uh, check it out. Um, Obviously, you heard it, but check out Cat's uh, work, uh, Carpe Glitter, as well. We're, we're going to take a five-minute break, um, and then we'll be back with William Gibson. So uh, stick around for that. Talk among yourselves. <laughs> yeah, we'll be right back.
All right. Hi. So we'll just give it another minute or two because we did say five minutes. It's only been about four. Is it? Okay. And, Pat, and Kat will come Kat's back. Kat's not here yet, so we'll wait, give her a minute to come back. Oh, here, here she is. is. Okay. We time, time, yes. Welcome back, everybody, to Fantastic Fiction at KGB, which, as Matt said, is always the third Wednesday of the month, come rain or come shine, come COVID or not. And so indefinitely, we will be doing this online virtually here until we can open up again. <clears throat> Over the next few months, we have, hopefully coming to read for us, December 16th, Justin Key and Priya Sharma, January 20th, Lauren Bukas and Usman T. Malik. February 17th, Kathleen Jennings and Shveta Thakra. March 17th, Jeff Ford, and I think, I'm not sure there's a question mark, I'm not sure what, Karen Warren. And April um, 21st, Nala Hopkinson. And that's what we've got so far. So, our next guest is William Gibson, who is the author of Neuromancer and other novels, most recently Agency, a sequel to The Peripheral. He lives in Vancouver, Canada, and this is the first time he's read at KGB, I believe. Yes, yes, yes. right. And so here we are. Please welcome William Gibson. Well, thank you. Thank you. I'm, I'm glad to virtually be here. And tonight I'm, <clears throat> I'm going to do a a blended reading. I'm, I'm going to read a, a short chapter from The Peripheral, which was published in 2014. The, the, chapter, I, the chapter I'm reading is, is called The Jackpot, and it's chapter 70, 79. And I mention all this because it, it was unplanned and I, I only only noticed it a few hours ago. The uh, partial chapter I will read from Agency of the Peripherals sequel is called Jackpot and it's chapter 75. And in both cases, the books, the respective books protagonist hasn't known what this thing called the jackpot is. The people who mention it to her are in the future and they mention it to them are in the future and they and this event are more or less in the past. So, and <clears throat> I'm currently writing a book called Jackpot, and all I'm really sure about is there won't be a chapter somewhere in the 70s of the chapter called Jackpot. But I'll be curious to see what, what it's called because Jackpot will wrap up the unintentional trilogy. Oddly enough, I never I never intentionally write trilogies and Agency is the first deliberate sequel. Uh, the first really like linear sequel. But in any case, there's, 
the jackpot from from the peripheral. She sat with him on her lap. He's in a, a little VR device in the old wooden chair under the oak in the front yard. Ben Carter, the youngest of Burton's soldiers, who looked like he should be still in high school, sat on the front porch steps, bullpup across his lap, viz in his eye, drinking coffee from a thermos. She wanted some, but knew she'd never sleep at all if she had it. And Wilf Netherton in her lap was explaining the end of the world, or anyway, of hers, this one, which seemed to have been the beginning of his. Wilf's face on the wheelie's tablet had let her way downstairs. She'd found Ben on the porch steps guarding the house, and he'd been all embarrassed, getting up with his rifle and trying to remember where not to point it. And she'd seen he had a cup like Reese had had with the pixelated camo that moved around. He hadn't, he hadn't known whether to say hello to Wilf or not. She told him they were going to sit out under the tree and talk. He told her he let the others know where she was, but please not to go anywhere else and not to mind any drones. <clears throat> so she'd gone out to the chair and sat in it with Wilf and the wheelie boy, and he'd started to explain what he called the jackpot. And first of all, that it was no one thing, that it was multi-causal with no particular beginning and no end, more climate than an event. So not the way apocalypse stories like to have a big event <clears throat> after which everybody ran around with guns looking like Burton and his posse or else were eaten alive by something caused by the big event. Not like that. It was androgenic, he said, and she knew from Ciencia Loca and National Geographic that that meant because of people. Not that they'd known what they were doing, he said, had, not that they'd known what they were doing had, had meant to make problems, but they'd caused it anyway. And in fact, the actual climate, the weather, caused by there being too much carbon, had been the driver for a lot of things. How that got worse and never better, and was just expected to, ongoing. Because people in the past, clueless as to how that worked, had fucked it all up then not been able to get it together. So now, in her day, he said, they were headed into androgenic, systemic, multiplex, seriously bad shit. Like she sort of already knew and figured everybody did, except for people who still said it wasn't happening, and those people were mostly expecting the second coming anyway. She looked across the silver lawn that Leon had cut with a push mower 
His cast iron frame was held together with actual bailing wire to where moon shadows lay past stunted boxwoods and the stump of a concrete birdbath that pretended was a dragon's castle, while Wilf told her it had killed 80% of every last person alive over about 40 years. And hearing that, she just wondered if it could mean anything, really, when somebody told you something like that, when it was his past and your future. What had they done, she had asked him, her first question since she'd started, with all the bodies. The usual things he'd said, because it was never all at once. Then later, for a while, nothing. And then the assemblers. The assemblers, nanobots, had come later. The assemblers had also done things like excavating and cleaning the buried rivers of London after they had finished tidying the dye off, had done everything she'd seen on her way to Cheapside, had built the tower where she'd seen the woman prepare for her party and then be killed, built all the others in the grid of what Wilf called shards and cared for it all constantly in his time after the jackpot. <clears throat> it hurt him to talk about it, she felt, but she guessed he didn't know how much or how. She could tell he didn't unpack this much or maybe ever. He said that people like Ash made their whole lives about it dressed in black and marked themselves. But for them, it was more about other species, the other great dying than the 80%. No comets crashing, nothing you could really call a nuclear war, just everything else <clears throat> tangled in the changing climate, droughts, water, sausage, water shortages, crop failures, Honeybees gone like they almost were now. Collapse of every other keystone species. Every last alpha predator gone. Antibiotics doing even less than they already did. Diseases that were never quite the one big pandemic, but big enough to be historic events in themselves. And all of it around people. How people were. How many of them there were how they'd changed things just by being there. The shadows on the lawn were black holes, bottomless, or like velvet had been spread, perfectly flat. But science, he said, had been the wild card, the twist, how it tended to be, with everything stumbling deeper into a ditch of shit History itself became a slaughterhouse. But science had started popping. Not all at once, no one big heroic thing, but there were cleaner, cheaper energy sources, more effective ways to get carbon out of the air, new drugs that did what antibiotics had done before, nanotechnology that was more than just car paint that healed itself, or camo crawling on a ball cap. 
ways to print food that required much less in the way of actual food to begin with. <clears throat> so everything, however deeply fucked in general, was lit increasingly by the new, by things that made people blink and sit up. But then the rest of it would just go on deeper into the ditch, a progress accompanied by constant violence, he said, by sufferings unimaginable. She felt him stretch past that to the future where he lived, then pull himself there quick, unwilling to describe the worst of what had happened, what would happen. She looked at the moon. It would look the same, she guessed, through the decades he had sketched for her. None of that, he'd said, had necessarily been as bad for very rich people. The richest had gotten richer, there being fewer to own whatever there was. Constant crisis had provided constant opportunity. That was where his world had come from, he said. At the deepest point of everything going to shit, population radically reduced, the survivors saw less carbon being dumped into the system with what was still being produced to eaten by these towers they had built, which was the other thing the one she'd patrolled was there for, not just housing rich folks. And seeing that for them, the survivors, was like seeing the bullet dodged. The bullet, she asked, was the 80% who died he just nodded on the wheelie screen and went on about how London, long since the natural home of everyone who owned the world but didn't live in China, rose first, never entirely having fallen. What about China, she asked him. The wheelie boy's tablet creaked faintly, raising the angle of its camera. They'd had a head start, he said. At what, she asked and how the world would work after the jackpot. This, and the tablet creaked again, surveying her mother's lawn, is still ostensibly a democracy, a majority of empowered survivors considering the jackpot and no doubt their own positions wanted none of that, blamed it, in fact. Who runs it then, she asked. Oligarchs, he said, corporations, neo-monarchists, hereditary monarchies provided conveniently familiar armatures, essentially feudal according to its critics, such as they are. The King of England, she asked. The City of London, he said, the guilds of the city, in alliance with people like Lev's father, enabled by people like Lowbeer. You mean, she said, remembering Lowbeer having said this, the whole world's funny? The clept, he said, misunderstanding her, isn't funny at all. And <clears throat> so in... An agency published very early in, in 2020 
my my protagonist is named named Verity, and she lives about two years ago, our time, in an alternate continuum in which our present the our present president lost. He lost early there, and no one really really remembers him much. And uh, Hillary Clinton is is president. As as chapter seventy five, also called Jackpot, happens, and this is Verity finding out about the jackpot. Over the drone's shoulders, through the tinted windows, Verity watched the two men, Japanese, smoking cigarettes behind the hipster supermarket. In white t-shirts, pants, aprons, they sat on red plastic milk crates like the ones she'd clumsily stepped up on, wearing the silicosis booties to enter Virgil's truck. Was it legal to smoke cigarettes this close to a supermarket, she wondered? Were they too near a food preparation area? She was thinking about asking them for one, even though she'd never before smoked one after Rainey had finished telling them about the jackpot. They'd all sat there in the van saying nothing, with Severin methodically finishing his fries. Virgil, Verity knew, had already heard at least some of this from Connor. She looked over at him now. He just opened a brown glass bottle of ginger beer. His eyes met hers. I know, he said, right? Sorry, Rainey said, I really am. I understand that it's too much all at once. I never told anyone before who didn't know. Wilf and Ash have. I wish it had been them. Did you ever come to terms with the sheer cluelessness of it all, Verity asked? I mean, the knowing for decades and then managing to do almost nothing to stop it? Not really, said Rainey. But it isn't, it isn't as if people in your era get all the blame. It began with the use of fossil fuels and what amounted to a centuries-long event. And it isn't as if we assume it's over. We're barely getting by as it is, using the shards or using assemblers as pollinators and everything else we use them for. Assemblers? Virgil asked. Molecular assemblers, Rainey said, nanotechnology. I thought that was supposed to change everything, Verity said, like the singularity. We were in our real singularity all along, Rainey said. We just didn't know it. When relatively functional nanotech did arrive, we used that to blunt some effects, slow things down. Trying anything on a larger scale has increasingly been deemed too big a gamble. The two smokers were stubbing out their cigarettes now, getting up, brushing their hands on their aprons, their break over, 
centuries into the singularity they might never recognize as such. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> that was great. Well, thank you. I mean, I read the book already, but I, it was, I, I'd love to hear you read it live. It's awesome. Um, yeah, no, I've, I've read it. I, I actually, I want to read it again, but I, I mean, it was a really fast read. The peripheral I read and I immediately read it again. I never reread books, you know. So anyway, um, it's, they're both really great depressing reads. Depressing <laughs> and, and somewhat weirdly optimistic too, but, you know, both. What? You know? It's, it's so, a, you, you want to ask? No, sorry, go on. It's a rough time to work with both near futures and far futures. I mean, you have to get well, kind sure. of totally yeah. interstellar yeah. to, you know, be freed up That's for right. the old moves. And I was never into that anyway. Right. Well, I know that you, I think I read, I'm sure I read that you had to kind of start rewriting things as things were happening. I mean, and now, I mean, with the COVID, with COVID, that was another thing that just got lopped into our laps. Um, <clears throat> but did you have to, well, you wrote the book about a year ago. I mean, right well, over two, a year I, and a half ago. It actually took me, you know, I published, published the peripheral in 2014 and published, published agency in 2020. So it took me like, you know, like, Five years to to do the thing, but and and I did. You know, Trump's election caused me to have to abandon the book I was writing, which was some similar in some ways to Agency. It had Eunice and Verity, but was set, you know, more or less in in our in our present in, in Silicon Valley. But as soon as Trump was elected, the zeitgeist completely changed, and it sort of killed it killed that manuscript. So it took me about a year to figure out where to go next. And to my surprise, I went went back to I was able to go back to the previous manuscript and and start it as a sequel to to the to the peripheral. But the uh, COVID-19 hasn't been a problem for me in this one sense that that uh, both the peripherals and agency refer repeatedly to the pandemics, plural. Right. Right. Yeah. And they say, yeah, well, the pandemics hadn't started then. So, you know... I, I got a, you know, I got a built-in cheat on that one. And this one, the the sequel, Jackpot, which is going to have to look at the parts of the jackpot that those, that reading doesn't really want to look directly at, to some, to whatever extent it's going to look at it, is uh, sort of waiting... I don't know. I think I'm 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 waiting until the the presidential election is 
fully sorted. Mm-hmm. Not that I think that that's going to necessarily calm everything down, but you know, I, well, I kind of. No. Well, the interesting kinda, thing, of course, in 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 Hillary winning, it didn't have as much impact as people thought in your book. You know that it's still the jackpot still happened. Or was going to happen? Yeah, yeah. I mean, but as someone says in in agency. Uh, removal of, you know, taking, having a non-Trump timeline just means that, that the really heavy stuff is coming in at a less acute angle, slightly less acute (laughs) angle, because it looks like, you know, it looks like the biggest problem to us, but it's not the big, you know, unfortunately, it's not the biggest problem. Right. Yeah. Mm. But it could have gotten to be the biggest problem. So, you know, I'm glad we're now, you know, we're now in the Biden stub, fingers crossed. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, I have a question for Kat. How have you been staying productive in 2020? Or have you um, been? <laughs> the thing that actually sort of saved me productivity-wise in 2020 was I started doing these co-working sessions every day with uh, the folks on my Discord server that hang out and then on my Patreon peeps and then I invited a bunch of friends and we do them every day. They've kind of evolved. There's like various events that have, uh, we have a short story discussion group every week and stuff. And so even while I've been at home totally isolated, I think I've been more sociable in 2020 than I ever have before. And that's made me be productive. It's been nice. I mean, not always nice, but that aspect has been quite mm-hmm. nice. Right. Yeah, I've got some people are here who are in the co-working. You can see them cheering. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, question for, for Bill, um, you know, related to what you were just saying a minute ago, like, do you, how difficult do you find it to write anything suspenseful in a time when the news is, uh, you know, daily apocalyptic and, and just insane? <laughs> well, I haven't been able to, to be productive in the admirable sense that, that Kat has been able to be productive, you know, through the, through the pandemic, I've just been, uh, you know, watching and reacting, reacting to the news feed and, and somehow doing this like incredible amount of stuff, domestic stuff Uh that I wasn't doing for various reasons that I, I wasn't doing, doing before. And it's actually it's felt good and it's also pretty much what i do after after i i've i finish a book is i i absorb the current zeitgeist and uh as my character milgram in an, another trilogy puts it uh, i you know, take take the measure of the fuckedness quotient, <laughs> because in order to do what I do, 
I'm going to have to tell a story that has a slightly higher fucktness quotient to, <laughs> to induce the, the degree of cognitive dissonance hmm. uh, that, I'm a, that I enjoy and that I assume readers, my readers anyway, enjoy. So it's been, you know, a, a year of absorption. But while I've been doing that, I've much more actively been applying that to where Jackpot, the next, the next book is, is going. So actually, I think, you know, I have, you know, for better or worse, I have a much clearer idea of, of what I'm what I'm going to do, and I also have to be able to keep it keep it not entirely depressing. I mean, those that reading was like that was the the hard pill to swallow in, in both these both these books, really, uh, and uh, this other stuff going on. I mean, some people even find them comical in, in parts. Mm -hmm. um, we have a question from Carl uh, Schmieder. Um, why don't we start with Kat? Um, what classic SF stands up, stands out for you right now? Well, I guess it sort of depends on how you define classic SF, but uh, I've been going back and rereading a lot of short stories, uh, basically kind of all over the place. Uh, mm -hmm. We've been reading uh, R.A. Lafferty and discussing, and Zena Henderson, and I've been trying to go back and find more of the women that were writing in the 70s and 80s, uh, as far as the classic science fiction goes, and finding, as I do so, that some of those stories are the most experimental and interesting. Uh, Jim Green's The White Pony that we read recently is, is just kind of bizarre in a way that I don't, I don't see other people writing at the time. So that's my classic. What about you, Bill? Bill, is there any classic, classic SF that stands out for you right now? Or stands up? Well, I... I think of J.G. Ballard. I, I haven't actually um, gone back and gone back and reread any, but I I think a lot about you know what what he did and how curious it is that of all the writers who who. Uh, the hard SF people would have dismissed this like, you know, this is absolutely nothing, nothing to do to do with what the real future would be like. That's, you know, they were wrong. <laughs> they are like, really? They were seriously wrong. I think about John Bruner, who got it astonishingly right yeah. in, in Stand on Zanzibar. That really, really feels like feels like where where we're living. I, I think about how uh, horrifically applicable 1984 still is. 
And we can now feel that in action in a way that I don't think has been possible uh, for English-speaking people in my lifetime. And and that's that's really been you know really been yeah pretty much it, it for the classics. But it's hard for me to read fiction in the period when I'm approaching writing it. So mm -hmm. um, this is a question for you, Bill, but I actually I want to ask uh, both you and Kat, how do you go about selecting the gender of your protagonists? Um, this uh, Amy said she found her way to your work via Kate Pollard for context, Bill, but I, I want to ask both of you, like when you're starting a story, you're starting a novel, um, how do you decide the gender of your protagonist? Start with Kat. If I don't know the gender of any character, I actually go back to my Dungeons and Dragons roots and roll a D10. <laughs> and it's a one to three, there's <laughs> I think I four to five, four to six are female, and then seven to eight, uh, seven to ten, it's something else. Uh, and I find that yields more interesting results if I do that. But sometimes characters come to you kind of telling you who they are enough that you know that already. Yeah. What about you, Bill? Well, <clears throat> it's an interesting, it's an interesting question. I've had mostly female protagonists, or I've had female female and male protagonists in the same book for uh, a number a number of books. I'm thinking the jackpot is going to be the uh, the might be the jackpot of female protagonists because we might wind up with uh, at least four, two of which are only quest questionably human. And I don't know, I don't know what, I don't know what that, what that is. For some reason at this stage of my career or my life or, or both, I'm, I'm better able to imagine female, female characters comprehending, fully comprehending their, their worlds. Possibly because I've come to realize that it's inherent, an inherent part of being female in our world is that things are not that, you know, not entirely comfortable. And one of the things I was doing when I started consciously doing when I started to write SF was to try to write against what I saw as various aspects of the grain of American SF. And I was very fortunate that, that to be close to Seattle, so, so, you know, Joanna Russ, the, you know, the, 
the fem all the feminist writers around her that actually you know that was an early, they were an early influence and i guess i guess that's it i i'm very uh, although i run everything past several female first readers though and you know i would i would recommend that to men writing female characters or indeed vice versa do you want to ask a question ellen no <laughs> okay uh, Katie, uh asked the question for both of you is there an aspect of the cultural reaction to our current moment that you find most surprising or fascinating? Uh, Kat. I, I'm gonna say, well, for one thing, social media, which I just find sort of horrifying and fascinating and actually at the same time, uh, sometimes very positive and, and cool in terms of its ability to signal boost for people or its way to alert people quickly. Um, but at the same time, I feel like one of the reasons we've had our current president is because people were manipulating social media. So it is a, it's just absolutely fascinating uh, how that works. Yeah. Yeah. Well, something, <clears throat> something that, uh, came up for me yesterday for the first time and in, in which I uh, have already remarked on in social media, or at least on Twitter, which is the only social media I, I do, is that it never occurred to me that the, the naturalistic beat that we've been, that has been missing from every zombie apocalypse show is the people who violently <laughs> insist that zombies are a hoax. Mm -hmm. And you really can't make one of those shows after, after what we've been through without having some, some guy there going, going, you people are idiots. You're believing in zombies. Fake news. And, you know, Fake this news. is right. a George Soros <laughs> hoax. Yeah. I love that. Well, well, there's that there's that book by China Mieville, uh, The City and the City, where it's basically there are two cultures living in one city and they have basically two different views of reality to the yeah. point that one culture ignores another and pretends that it's not there. And I just like it you read it and you're like when I read it, I was like, Oh, this is fabulous, this is you know fantastical, but we're literally living in that reality now where there's like you know, half the population of the United States believes completely different facts from the other half. And it, it's, I, I don't know, I just find that. Well, I've actually, I, I've recently bought a novella <coughs> for, um, for tour.com by um, Vincent Haig, but that's his, I'm, now I'm blanking out, Malcolm Devlin is his writing name. And it's about whether zombies exist, kind of, or, or zombie-like things exist. It's like, it's, it's from the point of view of someone, I mean, is it an illusion or not? I mean, it plays with that 
in a really interesting way because it takes the point of view that these people are brainwashed and that they're not really zombies and they're just seeing people and they're killing them because they think they're zombies, but they're not really zombies. So, I mean, it actually turns that inside out. It's really an amazing novella that'll be out, probably out in 2022, I think. Um, called And When I Woke Up. And Then I Woke Up. Oh, I like the title. Yeah. Uh, here's, here's an interesting question I think turns it a little around um, from Warner Mendenhall. Um, are, are you seeing any optimistic things now? Because um, you cat, you mentioned signal boosting. Uh, what are you, are you seeing any optimistic things? Well, I, one of the things that I think has been really cool is that, for example, we're doing this reading, and if we were in the actual KG bar, we'd be able to fit. I've been in that place. It's pretty tiny. Uh, you're not going to be able to fit a couple of hundred people into it. Whereas mm -hmm. right now, we've got literally hundreds of people in the chat. And we've also got people who are able to come and see us and ask questions live, but not have to fly to work to do so. That was the way it was with um, Roadman uh, this year. I thought it was really cool. You know, I would have liked to go to New Zealand, but I also was very aware that uh, friends who could not afford to go to New Zealand could be on programming. And I certainly hope that conventions have a strong virtual component going forward. Uh, I really think that's a very, very cool aspect to this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'm finding, I mean, one upside is seeing friends more often than we did around the world by virtual chat. And I talk to my mom every day on uh, Facebook Messenger, which yeah. I know. she lives in Florida. I would see her like four times a year and talk on the phone. And now, I mean, basically we see each other every day, which is yeah. kind of weird, but I like it. Uh, Bill, are you seeing any, any optimistic things? Um, well, first, can you hear me now? Uh, yeah. There's a little bit of a choppiness going on there. Someone called it, I don't know, nano squirrels or something. Before. It actually but, uh, sounds like yeah. horses. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's horses. It well, does sound a little. I had to do what we discussed earlier. <laughs> okay. The power, the power on my phone was running out, so we're now working through the phone mic. Okay. okay. All right. Sad to say. People can make you louder, though, on their own. Computer. Yeah, they, they can make you louder. And you're galloping a little bit. It's all right. <laughs> I, I like to lean into this and just talk about like the charming formal texture of things nowadays. Used to having children photo bombing. The Cats wandering through, disconnecting our computers. So. Bill, I'm just going to mute you until you talk, so it's not getting over everybody else. Um, <laughs> let, me see, let me see if we have any other interesting questions uh, coming out. Um, coming More questions, Jack. Um, Jack's sitting on my questions. Hang on. Okay. All right. Hold on. Let me see. Um, Oh, uh, Kat oh. actually had a good question for Bill. For Bill. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Kat, uh, if you were going to write any fan fiction in someone else's world, whose would it be? <laughs> oh, yeah. That, okay, it, that would, I've never been asked that question before. And I realized that 
sorry, I, I never really even thought, I've never thought about it, that I never understood at all the impulse to write fan fiction. When I was 13 years old and Fritz Lieber's uh, Fofford and Gray Mauser were my favorite characters in all, all of fiction, and I, you know, waited breathlessly for the next story and the, the next story to come out in fantastic stories. Like, it, it never occurred to me that yeah. to sit down and write, write one myself. And if someone else had done it, I would have gone, no, man, that's, you know, you're not Fritz Lieber. It's, so, <laughs> I, you know, I don't know. It's it's. I don't know if that's generational. Or... Well, I think that one of the things that happens now with a lot of the fan fiction is that they're writing in spaces that are already created by a number of different people, right? Because like Buffy, the Vampire Slayer is not just it's not just Joss Whedon. It's like a whole bunch of different writers and all the actors and stuff like that. So that might be a difference. Well, that's Maybe. that's quite true. Yeah, I'm thinking of it. I was thinking of it in more narrowly liter literary terms. Oh, yeah. but, you know, someone has to see Jack. He's Jack. Jack. Jack the Dirk. I'm putting him down because he doesn't want to be picked up. But someone requested him. Sit down. I see, I see everyone's got like uh, anthologies. Like it's an anthology where they're like, we're going to set uh, stories in Oz uh, would be an example of, uh, I would count that as fan fiction. I've seen a couple of. of well, I did an anthology stories based on um, Alice in Wonderland. See, I, I don't consider it fan fiction. Um, you know, I wanted people not necessarily to, not necessarily to use characters from the book, you know, but yeah. maybe, yeah. Um, here's a question from uh, Maria Cato. Uh, she asked, or they ask, um, and and this is, I think it's specifically for Bill. But let's let's just ask in general. When when you're researching a work, when you need to do research for a work of fiction, what's your preferred research method? How do you um, approach that? Uh, Bill, you wanna? Start that one. I I Google and you know I Google blindly and <laughs> go go where it leads me. And then when I start to have you know sort of some vaguely coherent idea of what I might wanna do with that technology in a story. I try to find someone who's actually familiar with that technology and yet has the patience to put up with me asking incredibly ignorant and stupid questions about it. Uh, so I sort of, actually, I'm, I guess I could say, I sort of farm it out. <laughs> if I can find a willing farmer. <laughs> okay. Uh, what about you, Kat? Uh, do you have a preferred way to research? Um, well, certainly Google is, I think, one of the best uh, ways to start. I mean, I think that is that is my favorite. Uh, it's also fun if you can get into a good 
university library to sort of wander and see what books are adjacent to the ones that you're interested in. Uh, that's one of my favorite things to do. Although I have not been able to do that for a while. <laughs> um, well, please ask the guests some more questions if you want. Um, we are uh, getting close to the end of the show. So, you know, get your questions in now. Um, I'd like to ask the two of you, do you have any questions for each other? Which always ends up being interesting. I asked mine. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's. Yeah. I don't know. I'm kind of. I. I. But do you want me? No. Would I? I would. Just, I'm gonna tell. I'm gonna tell the story of when I was CIFA president. No. I picked Bill as was one of the CIFWA grandmasters. And so I had to chase him down in order to contact him. And I'm going to say he led me a merry chase. And I'd be like contacting his agent. I'd be like, I really think he wants to talk to me because I didn't want to tip my hand. Right. You know, but at the same time. And then finally I got a hold of him and he said that he thought CIFWA was much more conservative uh, because it had used to be uh, very conservative, and that then he looked at my Twitter, my flaming liberal flip Twitter stream, and it had reassured him. <laughs> <laughs> That's true, and it was such a pleasant surprise. It, it was such a pleasant surprise, and then when I actually got to the event, you know, it was it was way more woke than I even expected. I'm going to say, what are you each reading now? Are you reading anything right now? Um, uh, I, I just picked up Roger Zelazny's last novel, which I had mentioned, I mentioned on Twitter, called A Night in the Lonesome October, mm -hmm. which comes blurbed by George R. R. Martin. So looks good. Well, I would recommend, I totally recommend M. John Harrison's latest novel, but because it's not because it's not directly in front of me, I can't remember its title. Right, I saw it. Yeah, it's, an, it's an unusual title. Is, yeah, it is a remarkable, remarkable thing. Uh, and he's the he's he's a writer. I you know I admired I admired him hugely when I started writing. And it's it's great to see him still producing work that challenging and bizarrely funny sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, here's a question, which I think is just like a retweet question, um, which I, I feel like we get a lot. It's like a very common question in the genre is the membrane between literary fiction and spec fic permeable at all, changing or only for a privileged few? Like, 
you know, I, I would just say like, I, I find those kind of definitions arbitrary and it's just, you know, it's really for booksellers and not really for writers. I mean, what do you guys think? Did you want me to put the question back up again? No, 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 no. Uh, it's nothing. Nothing has has bugged me more as as, as a, a a reading adult, and then as a writer, than the fact that those distinctions, those distinctions even exist now. Yeah. Yeah. And. It's anything. I mean, I can't imagine what I would be reading if I were reading something today that were was purely genre SF and nothing else. Like, what could that possibly be like? On the other hand, if I were reading today a work of naturalistic modern fiction, contemporary fiction, it would have to be doing a lot of the things that science fiction has always had to do. I mean, we're living, we're living in a world that is, in effect, a science fiction world. Right. So people, people just attempting to describe the present will will be facing problems like we don't yet we don't yet have we probably never will have things change so quickly we don't yet have an absolutely accepted way of of setting typesetting emails or texts in fiction so that we don't we don't have to say then she read his email I mean it's the technology changing more quickly than we can come up with literary conventions. Mm -hmm. And that's just part of attempting to describe the present, the present now. I find it, I've been thinking for one reason or another about possibly setting something or part of something in the early 1980s. And it, it suddenly confronts me with all of what feels like a science fiction scenario, because when huh? I think about it that way, it's so different from the world that we live in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, like you know, we're the present world, right? We have uh, people living in space for twenty years. We have DNA editing. We have supercomputers in our pockets, you know, and literally living through a pandemic. You know, to to ignore science fiction in the present is just to ignore re reality. I think. Mm -hmm. um, do we have any more questions from anyone? Get them in now. Now's your last chance. Uh, I have a question for Bill. Um, is there is there anything that you can do on the internet that gives you relief from the nonstop terrifying cliffhanger <laughs> of the world? Searching for incredibly obscure 
stuff that nobody else in the world would be interested in <laughs> on eBay uh, has, <laughs> has been, been my favorite getaway almost as long as, I think as long as I've had had internet, which I came to came to re really late. It's not as potentially the field of just stuff is not as rich as it once was because when eBay began, the world's attic was totally unsorted. Yeah. And now, 20 years later, they've sorted the they've sorted the stuff out. And it's not as much gotten, fun as we incredibly, yes. Yeah, but it's gotten incredibly challenging finding mm -hmm. you can still find things. So yeah. I I find I find I, I still I still do that. Cool. All right. Well um I think that might be a good time to uh, to wrap it up, um, unless you guys have any final things to say. Um, I, think, I think we'll wrap it up then. Um, okay. So, um, people have follow-up questions or things that they want to ask, like they log out and five minutes later, you're like, oh, I really wanted to ask that. We're both around on Twitter and both happy to answer questions. Uh, Perhaps entertainingly, perhaps not. I don't know. <laughs> right. So before before we sign off, I just want to remind you if you um, if you want to get Carpe glitter, uh, there's a link on your screen there where you can you can buy Carpe glitter from Cat uh, Rambo. You can get it at that link or um, at your favorite bookstore. And then uh, Agency by William Gibson at this link or your favorite bookstore. Um, please definitely uh, check out their work if you haven't already. I'm sure you have, but you know, there's always a new a new person who hasn't read your work. And uh, you know, thank you both for um, for joining us to, uh, tonight. This was really great. Uh, I love both of the readings. Uh, thanks to everyone who um, who tuned in live to watch. I think at one point we had uh, 120 or so live viewers, and I'm sure we'll get more as uh, people come to YouTube later on. Um, but this was great. Um, so this was fantastic fiction at KGB. Um, yeah, I guess I guess we'll see you next month. And uh, Kat and Bill, hang on after uh, we go off the air. So just we'll do a little debrief. But uh, awesome. everyone who, uh, who tuned in, thank you so much. And thanks Hello, for supporting the series. It was nice seeing you. Nice seeing you. Okay. All right, everyone. Have a good night. See you later.